Welcome to New Human Living Radio Show, bringing you powerful interviews to awaken the power in you. Learn more at newhumanliving.com. And now your host, Les Jensen. Have you ever caught yourself daydreaming? Um, perhaps you had to wait for a, for something to happen. You're in a doctor's office or an airport or whatnot, and you're just sitting there daydreaming. And you get glimpses of your life that um, kind of catch you off guard. You weren't expecting it. And when you when you take that the the inspiration of the, those kinds of moments, and then look at how your life is now, it can seem like there might be a disparity. Like perhaps the inspiration seems a little off, or maybe not quite as applicable to your life as you might have thought. It's a, it's a curious thing when when our egos have to vet or justify um, whether something has merit or importance or not. Because when we talk about our soul and our ego, we're talking about we're talking about really two completely different things. And that's what I like about the show tonight. The topic tonight is eco-awakening, wholeness, and the journey of soul initiation. And our guest tonight is Brian Stafford. And we're going to bring Brian on in just a minute. But while we have this conversation tonight, uh, I want you to contemplate the notion of you having a soul, and we've talked about the soul many times on the show, but from my perspective, the ego is a rational, linear mind. It wants the dots to connect. It wants a linear um, schematic or drawing or, or way to understand it. And yet our soul tends to be... <laughs> So nonlinear, so um, perhaps multidimensional, perhaps um, communicates in in imagery or um, inspiration that that is nonverbal, and um, that's what I like about um, the topic tonight. I think I think in this next chapter of our human story. The, there'll be people who learn how to um, teach their ego how to honor the wisdom of the soul, how to honor the vision of the soul when they get a image or imprint from the soul that they don't discount it immediately if it doesn't make sense. They hold it uh, and learn to understand it better over time. And I think tonight's conversation is going to um, really uh, bring some insights to this. I'm very delighted for this episode. Um, Again, the topic is equal awakening, wholeness, and journey of soul initiation. And again, our guest is Brian Stanford. Dr. Stanford was an award-winning professor of psychiatry, pediatrics, and public health, who, at the age of 42, walked away from academic medicine and endowed chair position to discover and develop a holistic, nature-based approach to human development in contrast to the symptom symptom and pathology-based approach of Western psychiatry. Dr. Stanford now guides individuals through a variety of organizations to the journey of eco-awakening, wholeness, self-healing, and to the soul encounter. His primary organization and webpage is www.wildernessandwildernessandwildernessandwildernessandwildernessandwildernessandwildernessandwildernessandwildernessandwildernessandwildernessandwildernessandwildernessandwildernessandwildernessandwildernessandwildernessandwildernessandwilderness
isisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisisis
I like what you mentioned about um, uh, the Western culture because if we're talking about a uh, a new narrative or a new paradigm, and yet if we keep the process of how we raise our children, of how we kind of mm-hmm. institutionalize education, we're kind of collapsing the 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 space, if you will, into a kind of a, a mainstream momentum. And in order for mm-hmm. us to, to create an, a new paradigm where um, it, it seems like when chil- children are born, they're inherently in tune with the whole of themselves, if you will. And then yeah. as we, as we quote... <laughs> As we quote, educate them. We're literally um, pinching off uh, that connection, and I think what you're talking about is um, for for most of us who've gone through childhood and lost that connection to reconnect it. But I, I'm thinking if we can keep the the next generations um, connected to themselves through the process that would make it a lot easier to anchor it in our new narrative versus as children are raised, it gets pinched out of them, and then we try to put it back, if that makes sense. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, Yeah, my sense is that um, maybe for the past, I don't know, 80 or 90 years, there's been two types of educational tracks. There's education for people who have strong cognition and maybe lots of resources and parents who value education, which move into kind of white-collar types of jobs. And then there's more of a vocational education for those whose parents or they don't have a whole lot of resources or access to other supports that go there. But in each of those, the individuality of the students, of the pupil, of the child isn't necessarily valued. Uh, my understanding of most of our education is it's meant to help you fit into culture. And believing, I think if some had good intentions, believing that that was the right thing to do, that it's really good to fit in. But look where Western culture has taken us to uh, in terms of equality and ecologically speaking. And we can probably say that education is probably one of those things that brought us here. And I'm of the similar mind that you are in the sense that I sense that um, nature has an imprint on each one of us when we're born. And there's something unique about humans that we maybe have some sort of image. Michael Mead, the mythologist, calls it the inner genius. I like to call it the um, tabula fabula, which is different than tabula rasa, which is a blank slate, that we have this inner fable or inner story imprinted upon us, which is our soul, and that we're meant to forget early, but if we have a healthy enough culture and healthy enough parents and healthy enough uh, educators and institutions, that they're tracking us and they're providing experiences so that our unique qualities are preserved. They're not seen as deviant or pathological, and they're not trying to necessarily conform us into becoming whatever, you know, a military man or a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. Um, But they're really tracking what's unique about each one of us and providing particular opportunities to explore that, which is obviously very different than most mainstream education, which is more like what, you know, the two versions of education. One is William Butler Yates says it's not filling up a pail. It's really lighting a fire with the spark that's within and so I think education is a place where we really have to rethink it now. Unfortunately, we can. Like most things in our culture, the pandemic has totally <laughs> disrupted uh, the way mainstream education will be delivered. And there probably won't be any going back for that either. So I think there's a great possibility with this disruption for parents and educators to think about and discover a different way of supporting children. Partly it's more nature-based. We've already been seeing that happening um, through the Children in Nature Network, kind of started by Richard Louv and with a lot of other uh, support from uh, researchers, and also the Forest School, uh, Forest Preschool, 
uh, movement, which is really about getting young children especially, but even children in uh, primary education, learning more about the natural environment and outside, both for uh, their own attention and their curiosity, but we also know it improves attention and behavior. And it also helps them understand where I live, which is something that most adults really don't have much sense of where I live and who lives here. So I'm right in line with you on education. It's really important place that we can um, maybe rethink it, reimagine it, and how do we rewild it so that the child's own curiosity, instincts, um, that we trust that actually and we support it and we mentor them into becoming who they're probably already designed to be. So there may be a little bit of teleology in that statement, but that's my sense of what I've witnessed in my own children and what many of us are seeing when we change the way we educate and we allow children to almost be a little bit more self-directed in what they're interested in and what they're pursuing. So so it's a bit of a long answer, but I'm right there with you. No, I like it. I mean, if, if we as the, quote, adults, unquote, have gone through this rigid, structured um, a molding, if you will, of our yeah. you know, how we how we think, the values of things, what's quote important to society, yeah, and and we're trying to create space for a new paradigm, as yeah, and and then as adults we have kids, man, it's it's like like you said it's it's kind of a hands off thing and let them find their own their own way it you know the i think a lot of times we we lose the inherent information in the environment that our body has for us like our body is yeah. an antenna or a receptor or intelligence of its own and it uh-huh. um um when we're unhindered it's feeding us real time information and yeah. it's more than enough to navigate us through the pushy car salesman that that doesn't care what we buy as long <laughs> as we buy something now. I mean, you know, uh-huh. I think at some level we would know this and then when we get pushed up in our brains, we disconnect from that inherent intelligence of the moment. So, like yeah. you said, when we when we raise kids, it's like they're gonna if they're still connected to their body intelligence, so to speak, and then our our minds, the adult minds, come along and say, "No, you're not coloring inside the lines," you know. That mm-hmm. that's the blasphemy of it all, right there, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, I agree with you. I think one of the things that frequently gets um, driven out is some of our innate, innate ways of knowing. Like in, in my own education, what was really valued is thinking and memorizing and maybe regurgitating. And very little emphasis was put on using all my senses. Right? Maybe visual, but not so much some of the other senses. And very little value is actually, especially for boys, uh, put on the wisdom of emotions and the wisdom of your own body. And one of the things I've discovered in guiding a lot of these transformative nature-based programs is that so many people live in their heads. And sometimes even when I see that they're having an emotion, I ask them, what emotion are you experiencing? What's happening? And they usually respond, I think I feel, rather than... (laughs) I'm grieving or I'm curious or I'm worried or I'm aroused or whatever the word would be, right? The other thing I've noticed is they are very infrequent. They have a hard time actually being present in their bodies below the neck. They are in their heads. So they're really in in deep cognitive and head space, but they've forgotten what it's like to have an animal body and to know Mm. that this body has evolved to live on the land and to walk barefoot and to participate by swimming in streams and um, to trust even, you know, when we get uh, a sense of danger ahead, to trust that in our body. Um, So that's one area, another area I've seen it, and also our education 
really supports our imagination because it's been so much, I'll just call it indoctrination, so to speak, and how to conform to fit in in order to get a good job and, you know, a car and health insurance. Um, so much of our imagination is squelched the moment we hit maybe first grade. And I remember many times teachers saying to me, well, stop daydreaming. That's just your imagination. And, again, imagination might be the thing that saves us in this time, and it's probably one of the most important ways of knowing because, in some sense, imagination is a unique capacity of our ego. And to squelch that uh, usually means that we're living a pretty bland and rote life. And this is something I see when um, a lot of people, when they hit, I don't know, 28, 29, or maybe middle age at 42 or 43, they say, I just feel like I've lost all vitality. And right. in some of the work that we do, we open up to our different ways of knowing, which is part of cultivating wholeness and using all our capacity beyond thinking, but also to be present and in our bodies and to open ourselves to our emotions, including grief and joy, and to open our imaginations, especially our deep imaginations, um, leads to a pretty significant shift of consciousness where people feel alive and whole and um, sometimes for the very first time that they actually feel uh, this incredible vitality that comes from opening these different ways of knowing. And that's typically not supported by school traditionally. Right. Well, breaking, breaking the stigma of the past, I mean, what comes to mind is uh, I grew up I remember watching man walk on the moon for the first time. And, yeah. And NASA would make these Ferraris of rockets. They would make these Ferraris. I mean, they went off the deep end spending money making a single rocket and they'd lob yeah. it into the ocean and go back and make yeah. another Ferrari and lob it in the ocean. <laughs> and, and the reason I bring this up is not per se um, Elon Musk himself, but his ability to imagine. So he comes along in this institutionalized industry. Yeah. And he says, what the hell? Why can't we just land the rockets back on Earth and reuse them? <laughs> yeah. And, and now he, um, what I'm getting at is his imagination, his SpaceX company is the largest um, um, payload transportation service into space in less than a decade. Yeah, yeah pretty amazing. And so when we look at all the narratives of what's, quote, going on right now, unquote, that's not serving our humanity, serving our, our, our essence, when we learn as adults, that there's a lot of value to get the hell out of our heads mm-hmm. and learn how to capture that imagination, that inspiration, and value it. It, it, it. Another thing that comes to mind is when my heart first told me to write books, my mind would go into these arguments about how <laughs> I wasn't qualified to write books. So mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of Getting out of our own way. I mean, what what's your experience with your um, the people you've worked with as far as how it's transformed their lives? Yeah, I think lots of different ways, and I think um, part of it has to do with you know this shift of consciousness, and and maybe I'll introduce another term or two here. Is that um, one of the terms I really liked by my mentor, Bill Plotkin, is he used this word, pathoadolescence. And he would, in his book, Nature and the Human Soul, he really pegs it that in many ways we live in a pathoadolescent society. Where, and we've seen that this year. I can't remember how many uh, news articles with regard to the pandemic or um, what's happening here in the United States where it's like, where are the adults in the room? right? And we have a different (laughs) definition of adult, but there's something here about not just not grown up and not mature, but pathological, where it's really about me and mine has taken over. And 
there isn't any kind of even tolerance of different views, and now there's much more violence, uh, obviously, on our streets in the United States and maybe some in Europe as well. And obviously, we're a pretty short-sighted culture when we've seen that what the earth is primarily here for is to extract from without the long-term consequences. So that really shows, you know, where we might be as um, a culture that we're primarily run, I would say, by in industry and in um, education and probably also in uh, politics by pathoadolescents who have not matured yet. And they certainly, most of them, in my read and even in some of my interviews with them and reading their own works, they are not healthy adolescents. And what I mean by healthy adolescents is someone who's had this eco-awakening and experience that I understand what nature is. And what's most important now is that I live authentically, but I also am not here to harm any other uh, human or the land base or any other creature. And that's a different right. culture. That's ecocentric culture. And I think we're seeing that shift now, especially amongst the young people who are really pulling away from the power structures. Or if they're going in, they're going in primarily to bring them down or to transform them rather than to get rich off of them. Like maybe happened from, I don't know, the 50s and certainly in the 80s. So some of the things that I'm tracking is that um, the more ability an individual has to connect with nature and the more permission they're given to be authentic, something else begins to shift. Part of it is they begin to trust their own instincts and they get to move away into places where they can actually tolerate criticism for being authentic and to do something unique, even though it might be a failure or it might be an apparent economic failure, which for most of Western culture is a failure, but to actually live authentically is even more important than to be a success. So I think that's right. something I witnessed quite a bit for young people that I've been mentoring and also for people at middle age who are wondering if, oh, I don't know if I can work for Exxon anymore <laughs> or I don't know if I can play this role as an attorney anymore. And in my case, it was as a psychiatrist, I don't really know if I can help people fit into a dysfunctional culture it's more important for me to help people discover what they're here to do and transform that culture. So those are some of the things that I'm witnessing in terms of authenticity. And part of it, again, is this ability to say, this is what I love and this is what I'm about, but this is also what's good, not just for me, it's authentic for me, but it's also good for my community and it's also good for my, wherever I live in my ecological area. It doesn't harm the ecosystem, something like that. So that's a big shift for our culture. And I think if enough people had a remembering or an experience of this eco-awakening eco or moved into kind of a sacred re reciprocal relationship the way that um, many indigenous writers talk about it, that wouldn't be enough actually to really shift our culture. That would be enough actually to, to really change the course of um, climate change and species loss and all those different kind of things. But it's going to take a, a big effort of pulling away from the structures as they are and the way we've been living and to create new communities and new ways of living. Um, but it also requires the shift of consciousness that I've been talking about, which in my experience has typically been facilitated in uh, nature-based retreats and uh, wilderness programs, something like that. I like that. Well, I mean, so often in the culture of the past, should I say, since we're building a new culture, whether we like it or not, in the culture of the past, uh, the measuring stick, if you will, so often defaulted to money. And sure. we would measure yeah. the value of something based on money. And yeah. and. In a lot of ways, money is is totally trash in our humanity. I mean, homeless people are distraught yeah. because they have no money, and it's a flippant yeah. symbol that we invented. Um, so, so it seems like changing our 
measuring stick, changing what we value. Um, now, um, can create a, a new measuring stick, changing what we value, how we measure yeah. quote success unquote would be a, a a big first step. How do we how do we go from the trapeze bar, letting go of a a, a culture <laughs> so entrained, <laughs> and and step in step into that new new paradigm, even though we haven't had any um, perhaps uh, experience or um, feedback about how to do that. How do we create out of the thin blue such a a core shift <laughs> in how we measure things? Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, two simple answers, willing or unwillingly. <laughs> right. It's possible that many people will have to change they will the way they live unwillingly because the old way just dies. And I think that's what's, you know, partly we've seen how quickly that can happen with this pandemic. Actually, the way that we, most of us live is just over and a lot of it won't go back. Um, so that's an unwilling. The other one is kind of willingly of sensing that uh, the way we've been living. And, you know, I think most people feel that, especially when it comes to petrochemicals and uh, the way petroleum products have you know, given rise to incredible CO2 levels and uh, other toxins and now uh, global warming and the warming of the oceans and the acidification of the oceans and the burning of the um, north you know, the northern hemisphere forests and also the burning of, uh, of the jungles in Brazil and the Amazon, that it's entered into mainstream consciousness enough that we know we have to do something different. But right. it's really hard to do something different, right? Because the whole structure and all of it is kind of meant to keep it going. And in some sense, our educational institutions and our um, religious institutions and our economic institutions and even our entertainment are meant to keep it going. It's really not meant to tear it down. And we, we already see, obviously, in this country, when you try and protest and shift something, it can lead to violence quite quickly or deep resistance from those who want the things to continue the way they are. And so part of it is really a shift from what's most important isn't safety or security or status, economic or otherwise, but really supporting what would be healthy adolescence, which is primarily authenticity and how do, you know, how do you manage conflict with other people and how do you risk being authentic if it means that you might lose friends or family members or, um, and their economic status. Those are huge challenges for many individuals. And some of the ones that I, I was mentoring a guy today who's like, I'm really drawn to this journey of eco-awakening and soul initiation, but I still got kids, you know, and I'm worried that uh, if I go further, I won't want to do the job that I'm doing right now, which kind of pays me quite, quite well. And I said, well, that's one of the risks, right? And, and one way to think about soul is there's two soul tasks in life. One is what your soul asks you to do uniquely. And the other one is if you're a parent, is parenting. And so typically when I'm working with parents who are in this place where they're beyond their 30s, they already have a career. It's not fully authentic, but it pays them well. It's a bit of a, um, a challenge for them to discover what really makes them come alive, what's really authentic or even deeply authentic after a soul encounter, um, and to risk um, that the economic status of their family might shift if they take a step towards soul. It's a tricky one. It's a tough one. Uh, younger people have a lot more um, ability to tolerate that risk because they maybe don't have a mortgage or they don't have uh, children that they need to, you know, have a certain income, so to speak, to support. But I see more and more people realizing it's so much more important for me to be authentic and discover what's uniquely mine that I'm willing to take the risk. And again, partly we've seen it in this age is that there is no such thing as a stable profession. (laughs) 
anything yeah. can be disrupted by the pandemic or global warming. And, you know, Pilot probably would thought, man, these are pretty safe jobs. Well, not the case in a pandemic. Same thing physician, physicians. If you were in a private practice and not attached to a huge institution, your practice, you know, is on the brink of closing because people didn't come to you for three months. So I think one of the great things that's happened through the pandemic, despite all the morbidity and mortality and suffering, is that it's a total disruption of the way we've been living. And uh, I like to think of it, um, what's that word, furlough? <laughs> furlough is actually permission. I looked it up the definition the other day because the muse just said furlough, and it actually means permission to attend to what you love. And I thought, oh, everybody knew that's what the term means. We'd all want to take a furlough or to actually take this time to discover what we really love and what's worth tending. So I just love that kind of uh, root for it. And um, I feel like that's the possibility right now for many of us that uh, we're in this leave of what's normal and we've crossed into a liminal space where we're not sure what's ahead of us, but we know we can't go back. And there's a bit of time here to help reimagine what could be ahead of us and not just accept what comes to us, something like that. Right. Well, I mean, you talk about people having anxiousness about stepping out of their, their paradigm. It seems like... To, to fragment and break apart what was a, perhaps a singularity as far as mm. um, the proper way to navigate our culture. I mean, how many people were sold a white picket fence? Go to college, learn a, learn a profession, enter the job yeah. field, play about 30, 40 years, and retire. And now that's that's gone. That's washed away. That's downstream. Yeah. If we if we break the the idea of a a quote correct unquote way of approaching life, if we fragment that and break it up, well, while you were talking, I was thinking of cultures that don't have anything near our Western culture's idea. Of, how to live life like perhaps the Aborigines in Australia. Yeah. They're quite comfortable in their own skin. They're, they're mm. totally connected to the planet, and they have no worry or concern about tomorrow. And how many people who are like the pilots that their paycheck just dried up, and they have worry and fret about tomorrow because our Western paradigm sucks. <laughs> At predictability, you know, so yeah. to kind of to break apart and create new sub paradigms, sub choices like maybe um, farmers markets that are barter or um, yeah. you know just more ways that we can sustain ourselves that are completely disconnected from the old paradigm or something like that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think partly and maybe we're already seeing it by the limitations here and worries about infection is that it probably will be much more regional. I probably won't get many of my fruits from South America in the future, hopefully. (laughs) Right. We think about all the plastic that goes into and all the uh, petroleum used to ship products for convenience from around the world to America. And I'm hoping that that goes the way of, some unfortunate extinct species that just disappears and that we're able to really create uh, watersheds that are able to support ourselves and that if there is, you know, bartering or other things across watersheds, that it's minimal, um, that it might look primitive, actually, which wouldn't be the worst thing, um, something like that, because right now it's so much of... Um, each region is so dependent upon other regions so far away, and humans themselves have become so specialized that they can't actually do a lot of the things they would need to do to survive should it collapse, like grow their own food, <laughs> get their own water, all of these different, right. different possibilities here. It's really a, um, 
we're going to have to relearn some of the skills that we asked um, unique people to do, right, specialists. So. Well, primitive strikes me as um, if, a, if a method for getting food, for example, is primitive, it's also robust because it's Indeed. easily recreated and, and it's yeah. not fragile. The more complex a system is, the more um, vulnerable it is to uh, um, accumulating issues. Well, it it takes some effort to trust any new paradigm. I mean, we're we're such creatures of habit, and I know our mm -hmm. egos just love it when we know what the outcome is going to be. We want to know what the outcome is going to be. Sure. But how, how the hell do we we start up these new paradigms, these new subcultures, if yep. you will? Uh, it's sure. like flexing a muscle. You can't just do it once and call it good, it seems like. Yeah, I think you're right. I think um, part of it is is there might be cultural creatives, um, and not necessarily patho-adolescent cultural creatives, but cultural creatives who might be have a unique soul gift that they're part of creating the new culture. And, and part of uh, my understanding of where we are right now is a, a term that comes from Joanna Macy, who's kind of an eco-Buddhist and systems philosopher. And she's about 94 right now. And she founded uh, the work that reconnects and has written many books. She's a true elder, one of the few in our culture. And she has this process called the great turning, where we move from this kind of racist and techno-industrial growth society to a life-sustaining and life-regenerative society. And she identifies three major things that have to happen. One is we protect all that is wild. Right? So that means nature, but also the inner nature of children and the rest of us. We try and protect that. The second thing is that we recreate or we create the new community while also calling out what is toxic in our current community. But we're creating these other structures and these other communities and other maybe even wild institutions rather than traditional ones. And that we facilitate a, a large shift of consciousness. And that's really, uh, I've been trying to do all three in different parts of the organizations that I've founded or co-founded or work in. Um, but one that I really am and related to the talk tonight. It's about shifting of consciousness. And that occurs when we are able to consciously uh, and intentionally leave behind what we think we know is right and to step a bit into the unknown with a bit of openness and vulnerability to discover something new. And part of that means usually there's a bit of sense of lostness Right? If you don't think you're lost, why would you be looking for that? So people who are very self-assured typically don't come on programs that I'm guiding. They're quite confident in who they are. But in my experience, that always peters out after a while. And then they start looking for something. And um, if in our communities and each uh, town and city we knew where those people would go, it's kind of like if you were in a nature-based society, you'd know that there were initiators. And everybody would know when you reached a certain age or some other sign showed up that it was time for you to go out into the wild to discover something deeper about yourself and to find a better place or a better fit or a more authentic place for you to fit in the village and to truly become a true adult. And so I feel like a lot of the, we've lost a lot of those things. We've lost the initiators and um, we've lost the, the guides to helping become more authentic and we've lost... When we lose the guides, then we also lose people's ability to discover more about themselves, which might actually transform the way we've been living, to move again from what we might call an uncivil society to a true culture. And so my sense is that a lot of the wisdom for this transformation is within each individual born in this time, and that's maybe what their soul's here to do. In, in all times, there's always been a bit of a conversation between the wild and culture. And most people uh, in indigenous, time, indigenous eras and in ancient times, they went to the wild to get informed about the wisdom of the wild. And then they bring that back in 
to transform the culture. One reason they do that is so they wouldn't overuse their land base and have overused the soil or overused the water, right? And we obviously see that we have this huge overreach currently in our culture. We use so much of the earth just for one species. And uh, my experience is that people who have gone to the wild and return with a shift of consciousness, they're committed to changing that. So that's um, one thing that needs to happen. And again, partly I think that each individual has a unique gift um, to bring back the culture. And part of, for many people, they will be, as Bill calls them, uh, cultural artists um, that are really here primarily to transform the culture. That they're not here to fit in. They're not here to get rich off it. They're really here to change it and they're change it to make it much more ecocentric and more soul-centric so that others can also find their own unique gift. So it's kind of like stepping into a... Um, kind of a morphogenic field, to use that term. Once one person finds their deepest place, it's more likely the next person will find their place. And the more people find their place, the more that individuals will know where they truly belong, their own niche, and then that helps renew the culture rather than keeping it going. Uh, one of the stories I love was um, I heard it from an indigenous woman who I heard speak, and she was speaking about the first time she came from Brazil and went to New York City. <laughs> and she saw it, and the first thing she said was, why did the women not tell the men to stop building? <laughs> right. Like, we just yeah. keep going up and up, right? There's never enough. And so I feel like not only is it the feminine that needs to be reclaimed and indigenous and people who are dark and to trust their wisdom, but also there's a wisdom in each of us. Once we encounter it in nature, we go back and we're like, how do we tend what is and how do we transform so that truly supports every being in our community, including the more than human community? Right. Well, I like, I like everything you're saying. The, the, the culture that we have now, if we look at economics all being hinged on money, education being hinged on really the collapse of our innate wisdom, and mm-hmm. the, the the various building blocks, if you will, of our culture, um, we're really at a pivot point, and 2020 has really landed it in our laps. So as a yeah. listener to this show, I, I like how you say that people have been born into the culture that have the new paradigm within them, that have the new narrative within them. And yeah. when we get down to the personal experience, so so the listener has gone through their life and, and they've worked in, I'm making this up, they, they've worked in finance and they've, they've seen the conundrum of, of the pitfalls like economic crashes and whatnot. And, yeah. and in their psyche is this impulse for a new dynamic, a new idea. I mean, they're the birthers, they're the seeds, they're the sure. carriers of what will heal us, but yet their their minds might be saying, wait a minute, who am I to turn the industry on its head? Oh, yeah. Who am I? Who am I to? Sure. I mean, what, what would you say to that? Well, that's part of cultivating one's wholeness and self-healing. So in, in Bill's book, Wild Mind, um, which he introduces a map called the Nature-Based Map of the Human Psyche, we work with different facets of our psyche, which we call wholeness. And these are the different ways of knowing that I mentioned before. But we also have what I primarily like to call protector parts. These are different voices from our own psyche that keep us safe. And we had to have when we were young children, actually in order to survive growing up in certain families or religious systems or educational systems and our culture. And one of those voices, which you just alluded to, is what the one that we call the inner critic or the loyal soldier. So this is a voice that almost all of us know, where it's, in Australia, they call it the tall poppy syndrome, because you don't want to stand out too much, right? And then uh, I've heard it from my uh, partners, um, people of Ohio, the, the phrase you get is, who do you are to think you're so big? 
uh, you hear these kind of things when you're young, when you're dreaming big or choosing something authentic, especially when you're around adults who never risked or could not risk uh, following their own passions. So we all have these voices inside of us, and they're necessary and essential. And they serve us as what we call childhood survival strategies. And they help keep us small, and they help keep us safe. But it usually comes to the point where we get pretty sick of these voices because we might have particular longings or hopes or imaginations, and then we put them off. Kind of like you mentioned, I think, to me earlier, maybe before we were on the air about, who are you to write a book, right? Right. Um, and, and we hear these voices a lot. And a lot of times people go to psychotherapy where they take psychotropic medications to cut down on these voices. And in a sense, these voices are really essential to us. And there's an entire process of, in some way, incorporating them um, and, and actually bringing them closer to us in love for how they did save us. And then eventually through the process, reassigning their voices so that they're they harp at us when we're doing something inauthentic rather than something that makes us bigger. So it's called loyal soldier work, and it's described in Bill's book, Wild Mind, and it's an essential thing because we all have these voices, and then they were essential to have, but the voices are a bit ill-informed. They think we're still four or five, when in fact we might be 25 or 45 or 75, who knows. And so part of it is to... Um, Tell them that, thank you, I really appreciate that you're trying to protect me here. And if I chose this, who maybe some people in my family might mock me or I might feel threatened. But what I'm really here to do is something authentic and I'm going to go ahead and do it. And so that's just something that it's not common. I mean, not uncommon that people have these voices when they choose to do something authentic that might be a bit risky. It reminds me of... uh, in our culture, Tom Cruise, he was in a movie where he played a sports agent. can't remember the name of the movie. Um, maybe some of our viewers who are 30 to 50 remember it. But he has uh, a vision, basically, of a new way to be a sport agent. And this is early in the movie, and he writes it up. And he is really, you know, the, the fire of inspiration is with him. He types it up. He gets it printed out and bound, and he gives it to everybody in the company. And then the moment he does that and sends it out, he realizes, well, that was really dumb. I'm in big trouble here, actually. And he was right, actually. He did get fired because of that, <laughs> because it was against the normal grain of the corporation, which is to make the most money with as little work as possible. And his was really about passionately caring for his athletes. But if you go through the entire story, you eventually realize that his is the right way to do it. And eventually he becomes the agent most desired by athletes because he actually does care about these people as humans, not just as another way to make money. So that's just an example of it comes up everywhere. It's in our literature. We all experience it. And the best thing to do is to thank them and say, thank you. I really needed your voice when I was eight. And if I chose poetry, my dad might have mocked me or the other boys might have beat me up and called me pussy or something like that. But I'm 38 or whatever, and I want to write poetry. I want to learn about poetry or I'm here to write a book or I'm here to start a, a movement or an organization. And I'm just a human, but I'm going to move humbly and boldly into the world and see what happens from that. So that's really what we need from people is to step out from their smallness and to move forward with their big imaginings of how to create a better culture. But every time there'll be a voice that says, are you sure that you're the one to do it? Right. I think it was Jerry Maguire. Was that the movie? That's the name of it. Yeah, Jerry Maguire. Yeah. Um, You know, and... I think an important thing to keep in mind too is is twenty, thirty, forty years ago if we were having these new ideas and before the internet, before global telephone communication, before emails. Yeah. We lived in a in a cocoon or an island. But but especially with Zoom and whatnot, we don't have to do this alone. When we get an inspiration for for a whole new paradigm, 
we have such a, a new resource of connectivity that allows yep. the like-minded people that have completely new paradigms, new ideas to yep. uh, collaborate with each other and support each other and, and re- um, reassure each other about what that new paradigm looks like. An hour can go yeah, by pretty fast, and I want to make sure the audience knows about you, your platform, what services you offer, and how to connect with you. Can you share that with us? Sure. Sure. So I do a lot of different things after I found this work, and some are on my own, or, and many are in collaboration, and the, the founders of this work and the developers are really uh, primarily Bill Plotkin, and he's at the Animus Valley Institute where I work uh, both as a guide and a trainer as well as I started a training program and some of the wholeness and self-healing work. And so you can uh, find us there if you go to the Animus website, animus.org it is. And then for those of you who are interested in education, uh, with many other collaborators, we've started a nature-based and soul-oriented teacher's college just to tackle the problem that you and I talked about at the top of the hour. And that's called the California Teachers College. You can look it up there. And then I also have an organization. I was raised evangelical Christian and have moved far away from that, but have found that I'm here to kind of um, help Christianity in its current form die and grow a wilder form. So I, with three collaborators, started something called Seminary of the Wild. And so if any of you are... um, religious leaders are of that tradition and you're looking for a wilder and a deeper way, you can check us out there. And then I live in Southern California and I have my own couple of guiding companies. One's called Eco Psyche Artistry, which basically means earth soul purpose. And you can look that up. And then my primary one, um, as a, I guide this work for healthcare providers and uh, doing that more and more as healthcare providers are burning out or, looking to find a more authentic and ecological way of being in the world, and that's called Wilderness is Medicine. So you can reach me for any of those, and I run uh, in-the-field programs still and one-day programs and hopefully soon back to five- to 12-day wilderness programs, but also do online programs, and also I do personal mentoring for people. I'm happy to check in with individuals for a 15- to 30-minute check-in session to see where they are and what I might offer to help create, as John Lewis said, the right kind of trouble for them, so that they might find a deeper, authentic way in the world. Yeah, thank you. Oh, very nice. Well, yeah. um, it, you meant to say uh, wildernessismedicine.org. You left .org. Gotcha. .org, yeah. So, well, um, Brian, I want to really thank you for this conversation tonight, and I want to thank you for the work that you're doing, the compassion that you have for humanity is quite palatable, and the passion Mm. in which you you bring that about is also quite pronounced. So thank you not only for what you do for humanity, but for also being our guest tonight. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've enjoyed it as well. I appreciate your questions and all that you've been doing for the many years as you've helped us to think about and reimagine how we can evolve ourselves toward the future as we need to. Very nice. We've been talking with Brian uh, Stafford, and the topic tonight has been awakening, wholeness, and journey of soul initiation. It's um, um, our relationship with our soul is one of my one of my most favorite conversations or topics because I think every single one of us has um, so much untapped uh, potential that exists um, inherently in us as our soul, and yet if we live in our minds, if our if our ego consumes a hundred percent of our consciousness. There's no wiggle room for our soul to show up in our everyday lives to guide us, to inspire us. So conversations like what we've had tonight are really spot on for this next chapter. And, again, I thank um, Brian for 
being our guest tonight with his insights and experience with that. I'm your host, Les Jensen. It's my passion and my pleasure to bring you episodes like this to help you have a deeper relationship with your own potential and bring it into effect. I want to thank you for sharing the time with us tonight. Until next time, thanks for listening. This has been a New Human Living Radio broadcast. To bring your soul's inspiration into effect and live your life wide open. Check out our host, Les Jensen's latest book, Citizen King, The New Age of Power, at newhumanliving.com. Thanks for listening.